Tony Duchesne here, and welcome to episode 99 of Drinks with Tony, which means the reboot of the show that started in 2018. I didn't have to miss any of the last 99 Wednesdays because I booked a guest every week. You see, when I restarted Drinks with Tony as a podcast, it was kind of in a state of depression. Uh, Confessions of a Teenage Jesus Jerk, the film was just released, and like that was an eight-year battle to get that to the screen. And every bit of my energy to get that goal realized. I was just mentally kaput, wiped out. I, I was really happy with the film and the amazing cast and director. But there's a Peggy Lee song that says, is that all there is? And that was, I kind of, at, I was at the end of that huge passion project. So I usually have ongoing depression, but this just, then it was like amped up to a new level. And I sat in my apartment and I thought, when was the last time I was happy? Well, don't get me wrong. Let's use the word content. When's the last time I felt content? You know, like a little okay. And immediately it was flashes of doing drinks with Tony in studio in San Francisco on the radio. And I was like, yes, of course. My first loves in life are the novel and radio. And it felt weird to put up Drinks with Tony as a podcast only. It felt like I was cheating a little bit. And I wasn't sure if I wasn't sure if I was going to get a guest every week, 99 weeks ago. So I said to myself, on the weeks I don't have a guest, I'm going to sit here alone in the middle of a cafe and just talk to myself on the microphone. And if people approach, just record those interactions. Well, episode 99, and I've I haven't not had a guest on every week. Anyway, I'm just glad to be here. I love doing this. I'm so happy that 99 authors have joined me up until now. And here we are with the show. But wait, Tony, who's the author on episode 99? Hi, I'm Richard Cadry, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Richard Cadry. He's the author of the Sandman Slim series. The last book in the series is Ballistic Kiss, and it, it's out now uh, when you're listening to this. How you doing, Richard? All right. I, can I make one correction? Totally, because I know I blew it. I saw the look in your eye. I, I saw yeah. the devil. You, you were like, no, dude, are you serious? So, so what did I do wrong? <laughs> it's, it's the penultimate book. There's one more book after Ballistic Kiss, which I'm writing right now. So Ballistic Kiss is 11. There'll be 12. Oh my God. Okay. I thought it ended at 11. So this no. is like the martini shot. Right. You know, it's just like, I, I always love like when I'm on set and they always go martini shot. You just go, your whole body just relaxes. Cause you're right. just like, Oh my God, the day's almost over. Right. And, um, but I'm really happy to hear that because I love Sam and slim as a character. And I was thinking, I was thinking about this earlier today cause you're often in my thoughts because you have so many books, but, um, what what was do you remember back to when you thought up the Sandman Slim character? How did the Sandman Slim character become an idea? I know I know that's the worst I, that's the worst question to ask an artist. How do you come up with your ideas? But at the same time, I love Sandman Slim so much. I want to know what was the impetus, even if it was on the toilet. No, it was it's it's really kind of boring. It's yes, uh, I, was, I finished a book. And I was looking around for my next project and I was going through my old notebooks because of all writers have piles of notebooks with stupid notes and pictures and ideas. 
And in one notebook, uh, I found the sentence that read Hitman from Hell. And in a different notebook, I read character name Sandman Slim. And for some reason on that particular day, those two things stuck together for me. And so I got, and that's really where everything else came from. It's just two sentences. Well, what does a hitman mean at this context? It's like, is he an old mobster? It's like, nah, that's really boring to me. Um, what if he wasn't a professional hitman? What if he didn't want to be a hitman at all? What if he was forced into it? And that's where Sandman Slim came from. He was forced into a situation he didn't want to be in and then found that he was very good at it. I, I love that so much because I, you know, the, the idea of just scribbling in notebooks and then yeah. one, one script, two scribbles end up, we were at book 11, go on on book 12. Yeah. I, it's just, it, 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 you can start a whole world from two notes. Yeah, you know, and you just start extrapolating. Like, like I said, you try to figure out what hitman means and what from hell means. So it's a guy in hell. And then I knew once he's in hell, I knew, okay, so he's going to get out of hell. Does he escape? Does, does they let him go? He escapes. Okay, he's been in hell for 11 years. You've just escaped. What's the first thing you do? I mean, what the hell happens after you've been in the traumatic situation for 11 years, it's like coming out of prison. <clears throat> and like a lot of guys, he goes and has a drink. I mean, he steals a car. That's really the first thing he does. He steals a car, and then he goes and has a drink. Because that's because, what you do when you get out of hell. Yeah, and I love that, um, that you put the, he has a goal, I need a drink. How do you get to that goal? you got to get there somehow. Transportation. There's no horses. What do we do? We steal a car. It's... Yep. It's the question of how to get to the next and to the next. And to the next. That's right. Um, and all, and also he always comes out of uh, the portal is in Hollywood forever cemetery. Yeah. Yeah. I always, I love Hollywood forever. And I always thought that'd be kind of a, since the books are about LA, I always thought it'd be fun to center everything around Hollywood forever. <clears throat> and in the, the, the last book that I'm writing right now, there's one, there's one last, big scene in Hollywood forever that uh, I'm giving them. It's funny. So. Since I've been in LA, um, you know, I, Hollywood forever is a beautiful place to just go have a picnic. It and really I've been is. there for movies too. I've been yep, they movie have movie nights. nights there. It's so fantastic. It's just like death and happiness. all at once. It's showbiz, right? It's like yeah. all LA. Everything is showbiz and even the cemetery. And I, I, I love that. Yeah, I, um, I, the last time I was there was for a, a Ramones. Um, it was some Ramones uh, tribute. It was Johnny Ramone because yeah. Johnny Ramones there, so it was a tribute night. And they played rock and roll high school, and it was just and you're just laying amongst the graves watching the yeah. rock and roll high school. <laughs> in, in fact, Johnny Ramone's grave figures heavily in in the um, very last Hollywood Forever scene in Sandman Slim. What is uh, that? Speaking of graves, and I'm very happy to hear that Johnny Ramone's playing a part. Yeah. I mean, I'm always bummed that Dee Dee Ramone's um, uh, grave isn't as big as Johnny's. I feel like they need to have similar. Uh, uh, what do you call it? Um, you know, kind of like, kind of like their penises. I'm sure are exactly the same size. <laughs> Why not make the gravestones exactly the same size? Yeah, and I'm not a fan of Johnny. I mean, Johnny was a dick. So um... I know. I want. I want more Dee Dee. I always want more Dee Dee. More Didi, absolutely. I mean, and, and Joey at least got a street named after him. So that, that's pretty cool. 
Where's Joey buried? Is he so is he in New York? I, I guess? don't know. I can't remember. Yeah. Is he back east? Is he is he in New York? I don't know. I have to go look that up. Yeah, now now I I wish we could stop the show and do it, but we're we're uh, just yeah, do a yeah, Google the, quick Google. The, light, the lights going live. I don't have no. Uh, what does Joe Rogan have? A Jamie? Hey Jamie, can you look that up for us? Oh, I've, ne- I've never uh, <laughs> never seen Joe's show. <laughs> it's it's not a prerequisite of anything yeah. in life, but um, but what what what's a what's a grave of a famous person where you were just like, oh my god, I have to visit that, and you went like drinking. Or you, you you paid a homage to a famous person? Um, probably Oscar Wilde's grave in Père Lachaise in Paris. Just because I'd seen the monument. It's, it's an amazing, huge grave with a beautiful sculpture on top. And I wanted to see that. And of course, I'm wandering through Père Lachaise, lost. And instead of, find, instead of finding Oscar Wilde, who do I find? Jim fucking Morrison. <laughs> Was that, was, everybody was, finds Jim fucking Morrison in that cemetery. I got to tell you that when I went to Père Lachaise, that was the first grave I went looking for. You know, I was in yeah. my 20s. I had my bottle of wine with me. And yep. I'm like, where are all the cute hippie girls? Oh, they're at Jim Morrison's grave. <laughs> and I, I, I wasn't disappointed that like, yep, there were a bunch of bottles and there were a bunch of little teenagers staring at me. Uh, hanging around Jim Morrison's grave. So it's like, okay, this is real. This is, I mean, he really is that little monument to 20 something dissolution. Yeah. It's a, but Oscar Wilde's a really good one. That's did a nice you, grave. Yeah. Did you bring in, um, did you bring in spirits or, uh, no, 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 no. I should have bought like absinthe or something like right, that. Right. Exactly. I, I didn't do it. Yeah. I didn't think of it at the time. To, you know, when I, the last time I was there, there wasn't even, we didn't even have, we didn't have phones with, photos on them i had actual camera with film so i think i only had like yeah, me too. 14 pictures of yeah balzac i'm like all right let me get this let me get try to get a selfie it wasn't even called selfie yet it's like right try to self-focus <laughs> wasn't isn't chopin in there too i'm trying to, there was somebody else i uh stumbled across yeah i don't think i went to oscar wilde's grave because i don't even think i knew who he was at the time mm. or that he was even buried there yeah, and there's yeah there's but the oh my god just when you think about like Père Lachaise and something is, you know, the beauty and grant and like just the history and then like Hollywood forever, which is just, yeah, it's, it's also beautiful, but it's just so LA. I just, there's, there's, it's almost even the way it's laid out. Hollywood forever is like a grid yeah, and spread out. Père Lachaise is like little avenues with cobblestones. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's like a little village. I, I always appreciated that about it. Yeah. There are things in Hollywood Forever I'd love to understand better. For instance, there's a lot of Russian graves, and the crosses on the Russian graves are frequently um, like plumber's pipes, just huh. very simple metal pipes that you would use under your sink. And I've seen a lot of those, and I don't know if that's a tradition or what. And I, I'd love, I have to go look that up now. Uh, I, I have seen them for years, and I've always wondered what that particular thing was about it would be fun to go in because you know there's the celebrity graves but there's also so much history before the celebrity graves that it would just be fun to know the history of everyone in there it's true that there's this god how long has that place been there i can't remember anymore the columbarium's great so yeah it's worth a trip it's worth just wandering around for a while have you been there when the um 
what are the awesome no, peacocks have you been there when the peacocks are no around? no i haven't no it's always been very uh very dull when i've been there it's always just just usually often me um i saw there was one burial ceremony once uh when i was there but for the most part it was really deserted i mean it's not a place i guess most people go to on a weekday so and, and, and that's what's so lovely about it because it's just you know, it's almost I, like well, the first time I went, I thought it was going to be like the Eiffel Tower or something. You know, right. like, oh crap, I'm not going to get parking in there. I'm going to have right. to figure this out. You go down there, you just park in front of Dee Ramon's grave and you like say hi. It's just. <laughs> it's true, man. It's true. And yeah. it's, and they, they have maps. I mean, it's really easy to find. If you want to find Rudolph Valentino, it's real easy to find. Yeah. Have you been to the, um, have you been to the cemetery that's in Westwood? And uh, right by it's yes. south of UCLA. Yes, a, a million years ago. I didn't find that until like two years ago. It blew my mind. Everyone's buried there. It's like Rodney Dangerfield, uh, Marilyn Monroe, Hugh Hefner, Don Knotts. I, I, the, what is that one? I don't even know what it's called. But the, the bang name. for your buck on that small little cemetery is just out of control. Yeah, yeah. It's a Hollywood Walk of Fame cemetery. Yeah, and, and and you're like you're like walking over Aunt. It's like the whole Andy Griffith show has a whole like <laughs> area. It's just like oh, there's Aunt B and Andy Griffith and Don Knotts all together. It's you know, I'm sure. I wonder if Ron Howard's going to be buried there. Oh, that'd be funny. <laughs> I wonder if he has his plot picked out. I, that would be a that would be a fun uh, book to find out where the to to do research on where these celebrities have their plots picked out. Well, be a good interview. The next time he has a movie coming out, it'd be a good, good, good question to shout at him. Yeah, at some and, big press junket. And then we can find, and then we could try to buy the plot next to him because that would be oh, big time That'd real be, estate, right? That is, that's true. The, the Ron Howard, um, Opie, and then Richard Cadry from the from the twenty first century. Um, oh man, I don't want to be buried anywhere. Don't bury <laughs> me. I, I hate the idea of being in the box underground. What what is your what is your preferred method of uh, after death? Sky burial, man. That's really? what I want. That's what I want. Chop me up and feed me to the buzzards. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Now, so would that be from a plane where they would drop like essentially your flesh? No, they they do it in Tibet. Um, they do it in Nepal too. Um, mostly mostly for monks. And. Huh. I, and you can hear that siren going past. Yeah, yeah. Um, it reminds yeah, me of San Francisco. <laughs> yeah. It's a tradition over there where they just take the body, they pulverize the bones, they, they cut it up so that the, the uh, buzzards can eat it. And basically, the whole concept is to destroy the body completely so there's nothing left in this world. Wow. And uh, I like that. I like the idea of being just uh, disappearing completely. I want to be stuck. I want to be taxidermied. Oh, that's cool. That'd yeah. Cool. I, I don't know where and how. Mm-hmm. When I get there, I want to make it happen, though. Um, be because cool. I, I want to keep, I want to infringe on someone's space somehow. Right. <laughs> I like that. I thought at one point about the volunteering for the body farm, but apparently there's a huge waiting list for the body farm. So I kind of gave up on that one. And, and what is the body farm? Is that for science or? Yeah, it's, um, I believe it's for the, F- uh, it was originally started, I think, for the FBI. It's a university project where they just take 
bodies out into this plot of land and let them decay under certain circumstances so that for law enforcement, if you find a dead body, you can go, oh, okay, well, these, these, uh, this body is decayed to this degree, so it's been here six months, um, or this body has these kind of insects in it, which means it's been here for six weeks or something like that. So they just have different bodies in, in different locations decaying. Just, uh, yeah, for science, for law enforcement, things like that. And there's a waiting list to get on, so you there's a waiting even... list to, be, to get in the body farm. Yeah. Wow. Do you how like do you have to do like 20 years in advance and kind of? Was... I don't know how it works. I sort of gave up when I when I read up on it, and they said it's like a. Um, I forget how many people were ahead of me, and it was like, ah, never mind. I wonder if other countries have that where it's like we. That's one reason to get dual citizenship is so you can get into the body farm in Australia. Because would be they don't fun. have as long of a waiting list. <laughs> we drag you to the outback and watch you desiccate. That would be interesting. <laughs> yeah. Oh, th- this is this has turned quite morbid. But I gotta say, some of the a lot of the Sandman s- slim scenes, you go there on the violence. It's great. Yeah, I, you know, it's I, I wanted to go with that tradition. It's the B movie seventies tradition of. Uh, you know, if if you're gonna go for violence, just really go for it. If you're gonna go for Peck and Paw, or um, Texas Chainsaw, you know, um, why hold back? I mean, it's a very '70s aesthetic, and it's very deliberate. That's a that's what the book covers come from is a sort of '70s drive-in movie aesthetic. And oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So. Yeah, why hold back in a series like that? I mean, it's it's a it's a madman from hell, um, and and I mean characters from hell are in it, demons are in it, monsters are in it. So why hold back on things like violence? I mean, I, I do avoid some things deliberately. You know, there's uh, I don't go into torture. I'm I'm not a big fan of like long scenes of people being tortured. I stay away from sexual violence because. I think that's used very badly in a lot of pop culture books, movies, things like that. Uh, it's not something to be trifled with. If you're going to deal with it, you have to deal with it seriously. So that's not, that's not part of the series, but when it comes to fighting, when it comes to, um, reg- you know, action movie violence, uh, I'm 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 not afraid to just go full out. And with and with the Sam Slim character is he's just trying to survive usually through all yeah. of this. So it's a it's a survival violence of um, of a escalated degree among demons and spirit forces and yeah. such. Um, I mean, and, he he does have his moments where he's very <laughs> proactive. And <clears throat> uh-huh. in one of the books, there's a house full of very bad people that he doesn't like, and he burns the house down. So. He can be proactively violent, but a lot of the violence he encounters is inflicted upon him. He is in some ways, uh, what do they call Ash in Evil Dead? Sort of um, the universe's punching bag. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, Stark has a bit of that about him. I I know we interviewed when I was at Radio Valencia, which is probably like 14 years ago. Yeah. Um, I remember, I don't know if, uh, yeah. You know, you know how memories fade, like after, oh, as yeah. we get older after seven minutes. Right. <laughs> but but um, I can't remember if that was your first, if that was the first Sam Manson book or if that was uh, the second one. 
Why did I even think that far back? Because probably, probably if it was that far back, it's probably the first book. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I can't remember why I thought of the other uh, doing the radio with you that uh, when we did that. But what I love about the how you write is mm-hmm. the immediacy of I mean, with the men, the, from the first paragraph, from the first sentence, we're in the story. You, 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 yeah. just, you there's something where you kind of just smash cut, smash. Bleh. <laughs> how do you say that in English? Smash cut, yeah. smash yeah. cut us right into the, right into action that I just adore. And there's so many of these like types of books where I don't I don't buy into it as much because it's setting the scene. It's setting right. the, it. It just it's playing with me. You just go right. You're in it, and it's just that's why I just love how you bring us into every uh, episode. Thanks. Well, that's, that's, you know, that's one of the things about writing um, present tense because I wrote the book. I, when I was getting the book started, I wrote it and there's a lot of versions of that first section of the book and it didn't work until I made it present tense, which that far back present tense novels were sort of still controversial and people whined about it a lot. Now, now no one even thinks about it, but 12 years ago, um, first person was, was a big deal. And the fact I don't have chapters in the books. So I, because I wanted those books like Stark to just be running all the time, you know, almost like they're almost speed freak books. They're sort of, you, you start fast, you go through the books quickly, even though, you know, um, they're not short books but people read them very quickly uh, is what I hear from fans a lot because there are no chapters because a lot of it's dialogue. It's easy. It's very easy to digest. And that that's very deliberate on my part. I've written other books that were much slower, but you know, I, I think about how to structure this book very carefully, how to even structure paragraphs. You know, I, I don't have long paragraphs, like for short paragraphs, punchy stuff, and that's who Stark is. That's what the series is. And I, it may seem like I'm tossing it off, but I really thought, I really thought this stuff out. I, I think people don't understand that when something is very easy to read and just feels like it, that's probably the hardest thing to write. <laughs> it's, yeah, I mean, it, 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 kind of, it kind of is. I mean, I've written plenty of different kinds of books, but in some way Stark is the hardest because it's, for all the violence, for all the, the darkness, it's, it's also funny. So I'm writing humor in a very violent context in a very fast-paced book. So there's a lot of stuff going on at once. And uh, so they can, uh, they, they can be tricky. I mean, I just blast out first drafts to have a first draft. And then all the good stuff goes in the second draft. I like the idea of just uh, just just getting that first draft done because yeah that, that's that part of that is so much of the fun too because you that's just getting the play doh and going how does this feel how yeah. does this feel yeah I don't know if it's that way for you where you just like just, there, there's almost yeah. like a you're you're in the infatuation part of it you're just like man kissing this book is just so great it, it, well not right not right now for me because i'm up against I'm, I'm writing a very difficult scene so right now i am uninfatuated with the book yeah when i get when i get past this scene uh, i'm writing a very particularly difficult scene so the moment i get past this one particular scene i'm back into a, a big action piece that'll be fun to write but right now i wish these two people would just shut the hell up <laughs> it's and what do you do 
to get yourself through on those on on the on the stuff where it just feels like you're you're in quicksand and trying to yeah. get through it. Uh, I mean, I have a lot of ways to do it. If it's really stuck, I'll do things like uh, I, I have various just writing techniques. If you get really stuck, change your change your writing technique. So if I'm writing on the computer, I'll switch to writing by hand. If I'm writing by hand, I'll go to the computer. If I'm still stuck, I'll change locations. I mean, in the old days, you used to be able to just go right in a cafe, which is you know terribly pretentious and a big joke. But it can really be fun. A friend of mine had a cafe. I would go there and, and just slam coffee and have my little notebook and just just write there. And it was a nice way to break things up. And I think doing something physical when you're stuck, again, going from handwriting to the computer, changing locations. You can do it in your own house. If you're writing in your office, go right in the living room or the kitchen for a while. Just do something different. And it will often you know, uh, give you that breakthrough to something new. I, the, the cliche of cafes is real because since COVID is like, that's the thing I miss the most. Yeah. Is that break in my day where I can get completely out of my head, sit in a cafe and do, you know, I, I never like bringing a laptop. I always want to handwrite or just, yep. or edit. I don't want to be yep. the laptop guy and to have people interrupt me. And I love it because yeah. I'll get irritated half the time, but irritation leads to things. Yeah. And, I, and I miss, I used to get irritated about things at cafes that I wish we can do now. Yes. The idiot who's sitting there um, at the small condiment station with the milk and the, and the sugar sipping and sipping. And you're like, dude, you're 50 years old. You don't know how you take your coffee yet? You're now, right. I, <laughs> now I wish for that. I want those people around. I want, I want that irritability. The old days. Yep. Yeah, really. Or if somebody comes up and says, can I sit at this table too? It's like, yes, just shut up. Leave me alone. Sit down. Right, right. Are we starting a relationship here? That's a seat. Right. Just, just take it. Just sit. <laughs> it's an empty chair. Just yeah. sit. Do you, do you want my blood type? And should we go get a wedding license? What are you doing? <laughs> um, what was your cafe in San Francisco? Uh, the Borderlands Cafe sometimes. Oh, yeah. Uh, the International sometimes in the Lower Hate. Cause it was near the international. It's not my favorite place, but it was near a lot of stuff I liked. Yeah. So those, those were two, um, those were two good ones. In the, in the, in the early aughts, as they say, I did cafe La Bohème a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, sure. And then uh, when I moved to the Tenderloin, there was a place that opened up on Polk and Geary called um, Jebanet. Huh. Oh, and I don't know that place. Yeah. It was, it was such a nondescript cafe and it wasn't cool in any way at all. Mm -hmm. There was huge windows and, for, and I wrote like, I think I wrote maybe two screenplays there and wow. there was something beautiful about it because no one interesting would walk in. <laughs> yeah. It was just like, well, not that these people aren't interesting, but it was just like nurses from Kaiser or something. Right. And there was a beauty to not being hip and not seeing other writers there. There was, I don't, it just, there was something sexy about it for that little. Oh, sure. Time. Absolutely. I can, I can definitely see just, being somewhere, you're anonymous. Everybody else is anonymous. No one, no one cares what you're doing. Just yeah. everybody stays out of everybody else's way. And I felt like, like especially in the Mission District, you know, 15 years ago, you go into a cafe. It's almost a networking event with writers. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, hey, what's up, dude? Oh, yeah, I like this. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> and I miss those days too. I used to be irritated by that. Right. 
but yeah i mean do you go to a park now how do you get out of your house to to write what's what's the i don't in yeah. fact uh i mean i'm really i'm really housebound um these days i just i kind of i still don't trust the outside world a lot and i'm not I'm not close to anywhere I like. That's the problem. Uh-huh. I'm in this neighborhood where I'm not wild about, and it's like there's nowhere I like to walk to. So I, I do just spend a lot of time in my office just banging stuff out or sitting on the sofa in the living room making notes. So, yeah, I, I'm a, you know, like everybody, I am, I am gruesomely inconvenienced by <laughs> a pandemic that's running wild in the world. I can't go to my cafe. Oh, you know, poor, poor pitiful me. It's, but it's brutal though. Cause it's, we have to, I feel like my brain's still wrapping itself around it and going, wait a second. Yeah. I can't, this isn't a dream. I can't do what I did six months ago. I can't do my routine. I, I get annoyed with myself. I mean, I'm so careful. We've been doing this six months and I still, there's a little bodega at the corner that I go to and will buy things. And I still will sometimes walk out of the house without a mask. After six months, yeah. I, I start thinking about something else. I get distracted and I have to go all the way back in up, up to the apartment. Cause I forgot a damn mask. That's just ridiculous. I went, I was at the dentist twice in the last couple of weeks and, and uh, one was for, you know, just gum surgery, you know, and they're like, take off your mask. So I took off my mask in front of these two lady dentists and it felt like I was taken off my pants. I, I just, I haven't been unmasked in front of two women in six months. <laughs> yeah. It's weird. It's, it's weird. Um, being in that situation of, uh, being unmasked with anybody, anybody new, anybody you don't know. And then of course you get annoyed by other people who are doing it. I, oh. I, there's a lot of stuff around here where people are starting to wear their masks around their neck. It's like, come on, man. That's not a, that's yeah. Just because you have the mask over your ears doesn't mean you're wearing a mask. It's like having a condom on a finger and thinking you're not going to get someone pregnant. Yeah. (laughs) It drives me nuts. Even when I'm hiking in like Griffith park, you'll see like a couple, you know, most people are masked up and good, but there's always those few people that you can just tell are going, I'm not masking up because of Trump. And they're just, their whole face is just scowls. I'm like, can you at least smile when you don't wear a mask? When you're being a dipshit, can you at least be okay? And it's usually dudes on their own. Uh, yeah. I don't know what it is. If it's nice with guys that chip on their shoulder, I don't see couples doing that bullshit. No. I just see dudes on their own. Yeah. I saw it was two dudes walking. Yeah. And I was just sitting there going, you poor fellas, you have such sad lives. Just look at the disgust on your face. You should yeah. get a mask just to hide your disgust. Yeah. Forget the health. <laughs> yep. Forget humanity. Right. <laughs> oh man, is so. It, how do you how do you keep like how do you keep on book twelve and keep in the world of Sandman Slim when we're, when we're in this world? Can, is it how do you separate the two? Well, I guess we are in hell. What am I thinking? <laughs> yes, there you go. <laughs> well, ironically, when I was planning book twelve, there was an epidemic in it. And now that I'm writing it, I feel very self-conscious about writing a book with a, you know, uh, a disease running wild in a world where there's a disease running wild. And I hope people don't take it as some sort of, uh, you know, me trying to take advantage of the situation. This was the book. This was always the book 
that there was going to be a, a viral outbreak in LA that caused all kinds of trouble. Um, I've, it, ironically, I've now written, I wrote a short story for Ellen Datlow that was also a plague story, or that one was, that one was post-plague. Um, Sandman Slim 12 is sort of right in the middle of it. So, you know, I, I but the story is what it is. It, it wouldn't function properly. Technical glitch there. All right. Um, yeah. But, but when you were talking about the planning of it, so do you, do you like really outline uh, when, yeah. you, when you hit a Sam and Slim novel, you do? Yeah, the Sam and Slim novels are very heavily outlined. Um, but the thing I always tell people, and the few times I've taught, is you owe your outline nothing. Just because you write an outline doesn't mean you have to do anything with it. For me, an outline, I start outlining when I have a million ideas and scene ideas and images in my head. For me, the first outline especially is when all that stuff comes together and I get excited and I start telling myself the story. That's the first outline. It's like, wow, this happens and this happens and then it goes over here and this thing happens. And I just write it down and that's the first outline. But when I start writing the book, it could turn into something else. So, um, by the time I finish a book, I'll often have five different versions of the outline because things keep changing along the way. And you have to let them sometimes. Sometimes you get off on a tangent and you got to go, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm, I got to pull back from that when things get too far off the uh, main story. But for the most part, if a character does something surprising, if a scene goes somewhere weird, I be, I'm a big believer in the unconscious when you're writing fiction. So I'll, I'll try to go with that and see like, well, why did this guy I thought I knew say this weird thing he just said? Does that mean something that I should change in the story or did I just have a brain glitch? And I'll, I'll follow that for a while. And if, and if something happens in a scene, why did that happen? So I try to, I think, I think if I can surprise myself, it helps me surprise the readers. So I try to keep as much of that stuff in there as possible. So like I said, by the end, I'll have like five or six different outlines of any one book, but I need that initial outline to get started. When, and when something changes like that, do you have a um, way to keep track so you know that that character did a different action? And that, so when that character comes back later, there, there's, there's, there's different decisions to be made? Sure. Yeah. I, I use I use something called Scrivener. It, it's an application that's really I, I find very very useful, especially for things like outlining and notes, stuff like that. So yeah, I'll have my outline broken up into uh, a virtual set of three by five cards that I use in Scrivener, and each of those three by five cards is a scene. So it means I can move them around. It means I can uh, add to them. I can edit them. So yeah, uh, if a scene changes, I can just keep the old version of the scene um, and just add on the new version. So if I want to refer back to the old one, yeah, it's right there for me. Cool. So I really, cool. I really, Scrivener is weird to work with. It, and there's, a, there's a bit of a learning curve. So if you're a writer and you want to write a book and you want to use Scrivener, I'd say don't start using Scrivener right when you're writing a book for the first time. Scrivener is something to play with and to get to know between books. I've because never been able to break. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. 
No, I th- it's something to play with before you really get serious. So that by the time you do come to your next big project, then you'll be comfortable with Scrivener and you can, and you can use it well. That makes sense. Cause every time I've tried to touch it, people are like, Oh, I use Scrivener, you know, but these are people that haven't published books. And I'm just like, uh, you, you might want to write, but that right. makes a lot of sense to dig into the guts of it to find out how it can help. Yeah. It's like when I first, it's, it's how I learned uh, Photoshop. You know, I had a big breakup. I had nothing to do, nowhere to go. And I just sat in my office poking at buttons. Uh-huh. Like, what does this thing do? What does that thing do? But I had no deadlines for anything. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like, uh, I mean, I, I have, I do photos for people now. I do some little bits of art, but at the time I had no deadlines for anything. So I would just poke around at things and see what happened. So it was really a, a nice, uh, a nice way to learn something. And it's just, I think it's the same thing with Scrivener is just play with it, poke around with it, but don't do it when you're on a, a heavy deadline. Yeah. How, how long have you been teaching? I, I teach oh, on and off me. I, I taught a class earlier this year. I'll teach a class in the fall. All this is online. Mm-hmm. And then I taught like 15 years ago at UC Santa Cruz. I taught a couple of classes there with a friend, but I don't really teach very much. Um, oh. I'll teach the, the one I did earlier this year is on dark urban fantasy. And so now that I have the class kind of worked out in my brain and I have course materials, I'll do another version of it this fall. Um, and it, it, it's just interesting, interesting to do. And I find, I wasn't sure that I could actually help people. That's why I only did it, set up to do it once. And then I found like, wow, I could actually help students. I could help people get over. I can't, I think like a lot of writing classes, I can't teach you how to write. But what I can do is teach you not to do certain really stupid things. Or I, or I can point it out to you. Whether you're going to do them or not is your choice. But I can point out some genuinely bad things people are doing, (laughs) embarrassing things, you know, that are both embarrassing in writing and sometimes socially. It's like, I know what you mean here, but um, it's like, just kind of like whisper that you're like, like, you're being kind of racist. (laughs) I know you think that by doing this to the character, it's a big compliment. And it's like, no, think about this again. You're uh, really, really being kind of racist. I mean, there were a lot of, I don't know if you know the term, the magical Negro. There was uh, a number of magical Negroes in, in uh, the students' work, and I was able huh. to point that out to them. And what does that mean? The magical Negro is when you have a, a uh, Caucasian protagonist, and then you have a person of color. Who oh, like the Green Mile. I think I've heard that. The Green Mile is a good example, okay. where you have a uh, person of color whose entire job is to come in and teach the white person a life lesson or save them in some magical way. And that's called the magical Negro. Stephen King is really quite egregious in this. I mean, I think Stephen King does a lot of things well, but he does, he, he's really bad about that, I think, in a lot of his books. So I was able to sort of show people, it's like, look, I, I, actually, I don't, I, I don't want to go into the details of a story, but there was one where it was literally... <laughs> an old woman next door to the to the white protagonist who was in fact a magical negro it's like don't do this yeah you can't just engage with this character on this one level right just have them wow i'm really having a problem and she comes over with cookies and life advice and teaches him and, and then she goes away again 
with no other interactions other than to just go, you know, just um, save the white guy. And that's, that kind of brings up um, just how to be organic in storytelling. And yeah. just, just, you know, throwing that in there just, just feels weird. But if it's an organic relationship that starts and moves through. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, you could have a real relationship. But yeah. that's the difference. Right. It's, um, it's a difference between a, a real relationship. And, and also, you know, it gets more complicated than that. Like if you have one person of color in an entirely white book and they're, and again, their job is to be magical and save everybody. It, it you know, it gets into, it gets into stupid stuff. It gets into Hollywood stuff of just, um, of how you deal with, you know, trying to tell a story that looks like the world, but is just, five white dudes and then you know maybe you bring in one asian dude or one black dude and go look we're diverse right and it's and it's stereotypical it's and it's so it's usually it's 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 always stereotypical i mean i i uh, it's just it just drives me crazy seeing films i think are are, are i think books and stories have gotten a little smarter about this but hollywood still has a lot to answer for yeah, and, and that, it really it really bugs me. That's why that's why I just I'm a fan of the novel first. I feel like I get my most honest stories from novels more than newspapers. It's like I can yeah. I can dig into humanity here. You know what's funny though when you were talking about students making mistakes, um, and I found it because I've done the, some of the stupidest stuff on so many levels socially and in my writing career. I feel like that I could I finally have an outlet for it when I teach, and I go you know what. Here's what I did. Don't do this because it's a oh, dumb yes. thing to do. And it's just like, oh wait, actually, it's I can take those sad tragedies of my stupidity and make them examples where people don't have to repeat them. That's that's the whole point of teaching is like, okay, this thing I'm telling you that's horrible, I did it. Yeah. Don't do it. Yeah. And I'm telling you from experience, don't do this really stupid thing uh, because yeah. I've uh, I've learned from I've learned from better writers. I've learned from older writers, and now I'm the older writer is telling you stop it. Could you hear this horrible jet engine sounding thing outside? Is it just a little you? bit? No, it's not too bad. Okay, it's probably louder in your headphones. But okay. um, and that's the thing because we have our mentors who have helped us along, and it's so much fun to kind of be a mentor. Just see the, it's just like oh my god, wait a second, I get to be in the middle now. It's, yeah. it's it's a beautiful place to be where it's just like, and, and I guess I don't realize is that my mentors always had their mentors. But when I was such yeah. a kid, you just kind of look up to them and go, they just, they just, they just grow books. They just emerge. Ass. Yeah. Yeah. When, you, when you're young and you think of writers, they're always these, these sort of perfect, perfect vessels yeah. who sprang out of, uh, yeah, who sprang fully formed. And then you, uh, Sometimes it, it's fun. Sometimes an older writer will go, uh, when I was at Clarion Workshop a million years ago, sometimes they'll haul out one of their student stories and go, look, I published a bunch of books, told, published a bunch of stories. Here's an early story of mine that's garbage so that you can see we all write garbage along the way. That's fantastic. And that's so yeah. vulnerable too. Because yeah. I, I there's a lot of stuff I have in my old archives that, you know, 
password protected. I want to, I want them to die with me, but I also want to remind myself that there were some rough, oh, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> rough poetry yeah, no, years. I, I, I don't know. <laughs> There's not a lot of old, my old stuff that I want to haul out and share with people, but, uh, yeah. And it cracks it. Like I look at people like, uh, like writers like Bukowski, who's probably written more books dead than he has alive. Yeah. And, and where are they finding, you know, they're finding the material. And I guess somebody's kind of putting it together in a more cohesive way or whatever, but it's just yeah, like, yeah, that's sad, man. I mean, he didn't hide it well enough. <laughs> well, that's literally true, man. I mean, um, that's what happened with, uh, I, I, with, um, James Tiptree, I, a bunch of her stuff was published after she was, after she died and I don't think she wanted it published. I think some of it she did, but I think there's a lot more material out there than she particularly wanted. And, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not wild about that stuff. I think you gotta be careful. I think, yeah, you gotta burn your archives when you're, when you're, uh, when you're gone, especially the stuff you can, you can keep around the stuff you published, but I would say just burn all the stuff that, uh, wasn't good enough because you don't know if somebody's going to come along and, try to cobble something together for publication so that they can get some money or, or something like that. I don't want to, I don't want to be known as a worse writer after death <laughs> yeah. than I was when I was alive. We're all struggling enough. Yeah. Well, you, you can put it in your, um, you can put it in your last wishes where in your sky burial also like strap on all the manuscripts that never got published. Yeah, exactly. So or, 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 yeah. Give me, give me all those old uh, backup drives. Just, <laughs> just have a big, just chop me up and then throw all the drives in a bonfire and we're, we're, we're even. <laughs> Richard, thanks so much for coming on the show. Hey, it was my pleasure. I had a really good time. Richard Cadry on Drinks with Tony. Check out his book, Ballistic Kiss, the 11th novel in the Sandman Slim series. Hey, thanks for listening and come back next week when I talk to Neil Pollock about his book, Pothead. Have a great weekend and I will see you next Wednesday.